Thank you, Kim. Good morning. So the words Kim read from Isaiah 61 are, are familiar to us, but perhaps from a different part of the Bible. Jesus quotes this passage when he visits the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth and in the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel. So I started out 2020 by visiting the Holy Land back in February before everything broke loose with the pandemic. To be honest, right now that feels like about 10 years ago. All right. So here's a picture of modern-day Nazareth. Somewhere in those hills a couple thousand years ago was Jesus' childhood home and also the synagogue from Luke chapter 4. So you heard the passage from Isaiah, but let's take a look at how Jesus uses it in Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 16. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. So, many think that this was Jesus' first sermon or first public appearance, as it were, in his hometown. And at first, it, it seems to go well. But Jesus rightly predicts in verse 24 that he would not be accepted, and he wasn't. So the hometown folks had heard about things that he was doing over near the Sea of Galilee in places like, uh, towns like Capernaum. And they were initially proud and expectant. I mean, this is Joseph's son. This is one of our own. Yes, Jesus, we accept what you're saying about this, the fulfillment of this property, prophecy. This is good news for us. Let's hear some more about what, what we've heard about over in Capernaum. But as I stated, that enthusiasm for the local boy Jesus that in the Sabbath that day doesn't last long. Jesus quickly squelches the locals' enthusiasm in the synagogue when he draws reference to two Gentiles mentioned in the Old Testament who were favored by God and blessed by the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Verse 28 states, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, they took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. So there's a precipice south of Nazareth that overlooks the Jezreel Valley. Now this is a picture that Kate Cogswell took from on top of that precipice. Um, it's a beautiful picture, by the way. Well, we really don't, we don't really know for certain, but you, you have to wonder, could this be the location where these hometown folks tried to toss Jesus off a cliff? So having been there and, and seen it myself, I, I can tell you it, it is indeed a long way down. <laughs> I'm sure in the minds of the locals, it would have done the trick. Verse 29 states, however, but he walked right through the crowd and he went on his, on his way. Obviously, we're going to return to this passage in Luke a little bit later this morning. So today is the third Sunday of Advent. We will light the candle of joy, we will get to it, in the midst of acknowledging our grief and loss through the service of Lights of Hope. And you, and you may be thinking, so, so why, do, why do we do it that way? You know, why, why do we, you know, why do we 
talk about, speak of grief and loss and mourning on a Sunday where we, we speak of the joy of the advent of the Lord. But, you know, really, the whole counsel of God found in the pages of Scripture has, seems to have no problem blending these concepts. And our passage today is no exception. So, uh, a few years ago, Pastor Stacy likened this to the movie Inside Out, as you just heard Chris, Kristen references, referenced, where the, the character emotions, joy and sadness, discover that they're both necessary and they both must exist. They, most, they both must work together in order for, in that case, the little girl Riley to be healthy. So, I mean, who knew that Pixar had such a good theological understanding of things? But they, apparently they do. The, the, the context for our passage today is Isaiah's proclamation to those who have returned from the Babylonian exile. So it's in the wake of their mourning and the grief that's caused by the captivity, which is, that grief is still very much present as they return from exile. It's there that these brokenhearted Israelites also receive good news of joy from the prophet Isaiah. And this is good news for us today as well. Is our good news is that there is joy because Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. And we get to partner with him to rebuild, to restore, and to renew that which is broken. Okay, so let's dive into our text. Verse 1 starts with a fact. The fact is, Isaiah states that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on him. The fact is, he's filled or controlled by the spirit of God. And he then lays out the purpose of this. Why is this so? And he lists several reasons. Let's identify these this morning. The spirit is upon him because, first off, he is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. So this, this image of anointing, it signifies that he, he was set apart, set apart for a mission. You know, the, the release of the bondage or the, of the, for these exiles was good news for these poor returning returnees from exile. And commentator Alan Ross states, the poor are those who are destitute, those in a distressed condition, poor in every way. They're physically and spiritually poor. Now, secondly, the prophet is not only anointed, but he is sent. He's sent to bind up the brokenhearted. Those whose spirits had been crushed by captivity. You know, he is, in essence, to pull together the broken pieces of their heart. He's also to proclaim freedom for the captives and a release of darkness for the prisoners. So, captive Israel could not see, spiritually speaking. It's as if, it's as if they had emerged from a cell, blinded, you know, shielding their eyes as they, as they walked into this newfound freedom. The prophet then states in verse 2 that he's to proclaim two things. The first is the year of the Lord's favor, and the second is the day of the vengeance, of the day of vengeance of God. So, the year of the Lord's favor, let's start with that. This imagery is borrowed from God's commandment to observe a year of jubilee every 50 years in Israel. So we find that in Leviticus 25. It was supposed to be a time when all the debts were canceled, the land was returned to its original owners, and all the slaves were set free. So this jubilee year, as far as we know, was never practiced by Israel. Apparently it was too much of a commitment, or perhaps it was just too radical for Israel to ever take seriously. But, but God takes it seriously. So this return from exile is a jubilee-like experience for those who are returning. You know, in the eyes, it's important to note, though, that in the eyes of the prophet, though, the year of jubilee and the day of vengeance may not be separated. 
He didn't necessarily see these things as two separate things. And the verses that follow here in Isaiah 60, when they allude to this, this justice relating to the vengeance, this justice being relevant both to the captors of Israel and also, also those who had inhabited the land while they were gone. All right, so in the remainder of verses 2 and 3, he lists the remaining purpose of those who are sent. His purpose is first to comfort those who mourn. He's to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and lastly, to give them a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So then, Isaiah makes a really unique statement about these despondent returnees from exile. He calls them oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. It connotes to something that's standing firm. Oaks of righteousness, you know, it alludes to Psalm 1, where those who do not walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or mockers, those whose delight is in the law of the Lord are likened to a tree planted by streams of water. So people often refer to an oak tree as a mighty oak, right? We hear that. I, w- I was sitting on my deck uh, the other day um, on one of those, um, about four weeks ago, when it was one of those warm but windy November days, and I was just watching the tree line behind my house as the wind just whipped these trees around, and uh, especially up top, really moving back and forth. And my, oh, my neighbor has two Behind me has two tall oak trees. And as the wind caused all these other trees to sway back and forth, these oak trees, they they seem to stand firm. In our passage today, the prophet calls these oaks of righteousness a planting for the Lord, a display for his splendor. There's something God can be proud of. They're both strong and beautiful. And then verse 4 concludes this section by making a statement of their purpose. And I really, this is where I really like the way the NIV translates this. These broken returnees from exile, these, these oaks of righteousness, they're called to do three things. Rebuild, restore, and renew. They will be the ones to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So, in Advent, we expectantly wait to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, his arrival, as we're calling it. We symbolically wait during this four-week period of time in Advent, but we are actually waiting for his second return to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So, in applying our text to, to Advent, I see this passage applied over four different contexts. So, if you'll indulge me. Uh, so, I want to keep with the musical metaphors from last week. This is a sermon application in four movements, if you will. So, what are the four movements or applications? Well, first off, obviously the prophet is speaking to his current context in in a proclamation to those who are returning from exile. Those who were returning, they were the poor. They were brokenhearted. They had been captives and prisoners, and they were certainly not spiritually free. You know, we see that the spiritual poverty of those returning from exile. All we have to do is look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, they needed comfort. Israel's return from exile was fraught with disappointment. You know, we read in Scripture that their attempts to rebuild the temple were were not initially successful. And even when Zerubbabel comes and rebuilds the temple, there's disappointment. It's not as grand as what Solomon built. 
The land was not as they remembered or, or more than likely what they idealized. There was tension with those who had moved in while they were gone and now who were living in the land. There's, there is no king on the throne as there was before they went into exile. So they, like us, they waited. They longed for something better. But yet the prophet says of these broken people that they are the oaks of righteousness. They will be the ones to rebuild, to restore, to renew. So this prophecy is fulfilled in part through them in that real-time context, but not completely. So the second movement I shared with you at the beginning is found in Luke 4. When Jesus opens that scroll in his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads excerpts from this same passage, and he states, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So I need to pause here for a moment and relish how cool this is for me as a preacher. <laughs> Preaching is most importantly about praying and, and listening to the Spirit as we interpret a text for the purpose of applying it to our context, right? But we who preach ultimately read commentary on the text. So we who preach study the text, but we also study those who study the text. Um, so, you know, like many of you, I have read tons of commentary on Scripture passages. Um, so what's cool about this today for, for a Bible nerd like me is that I'm blessed to have a commentary on a Scripture passage from what I consider the ultimate commentator. The creator of the universe himself helps me and helps us to understand how to apply this passage today. So, I mean, how much simpler does it get, right? After Jesus reads the passage, he stated, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, we don't have to make this harder than it is. In his earthly ministry, Jesus did fulfill this passage in that the good news of the gospel was preached to the poor. So, in, in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist sent a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask, Are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? But John was confused. And it was the case with many who followed Christ, the earlier followers. Apparently, Jesus' earthly ministry wasn't quite what he expected. And Jesus replies to the two that John sent in verse 22. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus substantiates his identity as the Messiah, or as the one to come, as John puts it in his question, by the fulfillment of these very acts that he earlier identified in Luke 4. Back to Luke 4. What Jesus meant in the synagogue in Nazareth that day was that Messiah had arrived. And many call what happens in Luke 4 as the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. But there's a third movement, as was the case with our first two passages in our Advent series. And in true Advent fashion, this passage is also about the not yet. There's a partial fulfillment in this first Advent, but the ultimate fulfillment is to come in the coming kingdom of our Lord. So regarding uh, Jesus' words in Luke 4, commentator Alan Ross elaborates. The way that Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 reveals a mystery about Messiah's coming. Jesus says in Luke 4:19 that he has been sent to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops. But Isaiah 61:2 states to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So why didn't Jesus finish the sentence? 
Well, because the coming of Messiah is a two-act drama. The Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah, they saw the drama as a whole. They didn't see it as two acts separated by generations or centuries. They anticipated salvation and judgment together. The year of jubilee or liberation and the day of vengeance were one in their eyes. So the first coming of Christ ushered in this acceptable year of the Lord. A year just meaning a space of time. For a space of time for salvation, not judgment. And we currently still live in that space. A time of grace. A time of patience. God withholds his judgment. He offers grace while this acceptable year lasts. But when that space of time is over, and the appointed time of the Father has come, then the day of vengeance will arrive. And the prophecy of Isaiah 61-2 will be completed. And, and we who follow Christ, we wait eagerly for that day because that is when justice will be established and he will wipe away every tear for those who know christ the coming day of judgment is is a day a space of time that we long for okay what's the last movement well it involves us the spirit of the sovereign lord is also upon you all that we read in the text is certainly about the prophet Isaiah in the context of those returning from exile. It's most definitely about Jesus and his earthly ministry and what he will do in the kingdom which is coming. But part of that kingdom is here and now and it's coming through you. We stand in this tension, the tension of the now and the not yet. And because of that, we are also partners in ushering in this kingdom. And this passage is descriptive of our part our portion in that part of God's mission to the world. We are partnering with him. Partnering with him in proclaiming good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming freedom to the captives, release from the prison of darkness. He has bestowed on us beauty instead of ashes. He has given us the joy, the oil of joy instead of mourning. We are the oaks of righteousness. Because of that, we're called to rebuild to restore and to renew. And there are many ways we can do that. One of the ways here, ACC, as you heard earlier, that we minister to those who are sitting in darkness and feel imprisoned by grief and loss is the caregiving ministry of Stephen Ministries. And I shared about this last month that in Stephen Ministries, we like to say that we are caregivers, but God is the caregiver. We partner with him in this ministry of providing care and comfort for those who are grieving, those who are experiencing loss, those who are sitting in darkness. But even if, even if you're not a Stephen minister, you are still called to rebuild, to restore, to renew. 2020, all I got to do is say it, right? It's been a year like no other for most of us. I mean, we, we resonate with the words of Isaiah 61 perhaps more than we have in any previous year that any of us have been alive. Words like poor in spirit, brokenhearted, captive, prisoner, those who grieve, a spirit of despair. They connect with us maybe like never before. So many of us in this room have become brokenhearted this past year. Whether it's because of the loss of a loved one. You know, so many of us, I just seem at this church, myself included, have buried one of our parents this year. Many identify with the loss of meaningful relationships. You know, many of our Existing relationships have been altered because of sheltering at home and, and isolation. 
And even during this holiday season, you know, we're un, many are unable to connect with those we love in the way that we want to connect. Many have lost jobs, but most all of us have had our jobs altered in a way that we didn't expect. And many are struggling with the loss of a sense of loss of direction in life. And still, others are facing physical challenges, the challenges of a health diagnosis that makes us anxious about the future. And once again, there seems to be no shortage of disasters or tragedies in the past few months, let alone all the political and racial tension that creates sorrow and stress. And some of this tension has caused friendships to end. Or more than likely, they probably just quietly dissolve in the wake of the divisions that, in our society that are centered around politics or, or other ideologies. I mean, do you have friends who just, just don't talk to you as much anymore? So, if any of what I just described describes how you feel, the first thing you need to know is that it's okay to feel that disappointment, to feel that sadness. Kelly Holland, who you heard from earlier, and I were talking about what we're doing today. And, and she reiterated that it's important that we name these feelings and that we be, we be allowed to sit in this. You know, the Stephen Ministry Home Office sent out a publication last week where they kind of identified and coined this phrase. The appropriate phrase they, they appropriately called it pandemic fatigue. Pandemic fatigue. I think most all of us have pandemic fatigue. So we don't just gloss over it and say, hey, Christian, be happy. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was born into a world helpless, independent. He was born into poverty. The Bible says of Jesus, he was a man acquainted with many sorrows. He knew what it's like to be disappointed by all these things. He knew what it meant to be let down by others. But he's also the one that binds up our broken hearts. And he's the one who sets us free. And so this morning, as we have for the past few years, we're going to take a moment to acknowledge our grief amidst the joy of this season. And we do that by inviting you to take part in our Lights of Hope observance. So this morning, we want to invite those of you who are here to come forward to light a candle in acknowledgement of any burden that you're carrying. Okay, So there, there's nothing magical about lighting a candle. There's no... There's no mystic power in this, all right? This is just an intentional act of worship. So come forward. Allow your brothers and sisters in Christ to lift you up in prayer today, in the days to come. You know, come forward and turn your grief into an act of worship for God, trusting that God will meet you where you are with his mercy and his grace and his comfort and his presence. We invite those who are worshiping with us online this morning to do the same thing. Uh, we have encouraged you earlier in the service to grab a candle at your home and light it along with us when we come to that portion. Many of you who can't be here this morning with us have asked the pastors to light a candle on your behalf. We're going to do that as well. So I want to invite you all to stand and join me in a responsive prayer so that we may faithfully honor the burdens that we carry to God as the God to whom we bring those burdens. So I'm going to offer up several brief prayers this morning. And when I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, respond corporately with, hear our prayer. Go ahead and put that on the screen. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. There it is. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, you sent Jesus into a, 
the world to proclaim good news to those who are poor. God, we lift our own financial difficulties and burdens to you, and we lift up those who we know are living in financial difficulty. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Sovereign God, you poured out your spirit upon Jesus in order that he might bind up the broken hearts for healing. God, we lift our broken hearts to you. And we lift up those who we know who hearts, whose hearts have been devastated by life's losses. Lord, in your mercy. Father, you anointed Jesus as the promised liberating king that he might proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We lift up those who we know who are trapped in dark and difficult situations in life. Lord, in your mercy. Jesus came to give the grieving a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. We ask that you would give us hope in the midst of our darkness. May we know that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, in your mercy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people, we pray. And God, grant to all, especially those who are bereaved and troubled this Christmas season, your promised comfort, strength, and ultimate victory. We place our hope in you today. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. I ask you to please remain standing as we sing. The pastors are going to, uh, Pastor Stacy is going to light some candles for those who are worshiping online and who have requested. When, when he finishes, we want to welcome you, those who feel led to come forward using these three center aisles. I want to encourage you to, you to, we have plenty of time here, so honor social distancing as you do that. You can return to your pews going through the outside aisles and around the back to return to your seats. You can use your own stick, lighting stick, as Stacy's demonstrating now, to get your flame from the pillar candle, and then you can light your candle with that stick, and then there's a place for you to discard that. Megan. I'm back. We aren't quite done with Isaiah 61. It has something else to say to us this morning. I stated in the opening that the Bible generally has no tension blending sorrow and joy. And an interesting thing happens in Isaiah 61. At the end of the chapter, as Isaiah is just continuing to prophesy to Israel regarding their return from exile, something abrupt happens. In verse 10, he interrupts the flow which is an outbreak of praise. Verse 10 states, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he, is a, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He arrayed me in robes of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. And a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's as if the prophet can't control himself. And he just bursts into praise here in verse 10. And he states that his soul rejoices in God. Why? Well, because he got some new clothes. He got a new wardrobe. Perhaps new clothing is on your Christmas list this year. Perhaps you will burst forth into joy when you open it. 
Well, the prophet gives us good news that he and all of us who are in Christ have been clothed with the garment of salvation. We have been arrayed with robes of righteousness. Just as a, a bride and a groom adorn themselves for a wedding, we have been adorned with something better. In, in Revelation 19.8, John speaks of his vision of the wedding feast. And, and as us, as the bride of Christ, when he states that fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And the, the prophet here delights. He rejoices as he continues for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes the seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring forth before all nations. It's like the Lord himself is a master gardener who cultivates righteousness and praise before all nations. We, we are one of those nations. So, Advent is the season of waiting. We wait for that victorious day where there is no more sin, and he wipes away every tear. We wait for that feast where we, clothed in righteousness, are made ready for the Lamb of God. We wait and we sing a new song with joy. So guys, let's let praises spring up this morning. Let's burst forth with joy this morning in this closing song. We partner with God in rebuilding and restoring and renewing in the present. But you know what? We have a future that's already been written. Let's worship.